You turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're taking a break from Hebrews for a few weeks. And then we'll return back again in January to Hebrews chapter 11 at that time. We'll read uh, a little chapter, Matthew chapter 1. Some of you have accused me of giving the assistant pastors all the harder passages to read a long list of names, so I'm reading it today just to prove you wrong. I can't read names too. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz by the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Nathan, and Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who Jesus was born, who spoke Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon. 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the testimony, the record, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we pray that as we hear the gospel story once again, as we hear the, the very beginning of the birth of Christ, uh, Lord, that this would not be old news for us, but it would be fresh and new to us even to this day for those who have been Christians for many years, as well as those who have just recently heard the gospel. We, we pray, Father, we give us ears to hear 
and eyes to see uh, the glorious Son of God in His kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. A little boy once asked his mother where he came from, and his mother gave him a tall tale. I shared this before, but I thought it was so funny to say it. He's asking where his mother, where he came from. His mother told him a tall tale about being delivered by a beautiful white feathered bird. The boy, not buying the story, then went to the grandmother and asked the grandmother where his mother came from, and she gave a variation of the same story. So finally, disgusted, he went out to play with his friends. And he said, you know, there hasn't been a normal birth in our family in three generations. <laughs> now, most of us were born in the normal way. We were mother and father. And most of us were born either at home or in the hospital. Uh, but I'm sure you've heard of some of those unusual cases where people have been born in more extraordinary manners, uh, certainly with uh, various ages of parents and uh, sometimes people are born on an airplane. Can you imagine? Uh, some are born on an elevator. And uh, I think I shared with you one uh, in a sermon a year or two ago about a woman that was uh, gave birth to a child in a tree during the flood. She was stuck up in a tree for a week and she gave birth to a baby boy in a tree. Some very extraordinary stories. But what you'll find is that most of those extraordinary birth stories ended up with very normal human life for the rest of their life. There's nothing extraordinary about the rest of their life. On the other hand, some had very normal births and then very extraordinary life. For instance, in 1809, when Napoleon was terrorizing all the nations of Europe, there were a number of big movers and shakers who were born that year that would change the trajectory of our culture government the world. Uh, that same year was the year that Abraham Lincoln was born. It's the same year that Charles Darwin was born, that Edgar Allan Poe was born, that Oliver Wendell Holmes was born, and even uh, Lewis or Louis Braille, the guy who made the system of Braille writing for the blind. Just to name a few. It was one of those years in which just every possible awesome person in that sense was born who'd come up with all of these really unique ideas. But the day they were born, the year that they were born, Nothing was in the newspaper. No one sang a song about it. No one thought anything of it. Uh, but yet, somehow, in the cradle, the future of the world was being shaped. On a very rare occasion, there are men such as Moses, whose both his birth story as well as his whole life is important. God had preserved him and had set him aside even from birth to be the savior of the Jews. He would save his people out of their bondage. In Egypt. Well, in the same way, we see in this unique account of the Gospel of Matthew how God has brought Jesus to earth to take on human flesh, to be born in a very extraordinary way, to set himself up to be the Savior of the world. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is uh, three very unique testimonies that Matthew provides in this first chapter that help us to see why his birth is extraordinary and why it means so much to us this day. First, he records for us Jesus' very unique pedigree. Second, he tells of his unique paternity. And third, he also shares with us two of what will become many very unique prophecies as well. 
So let's look at these in the turn. First, consider his pedigree. If you look at verse 1, I'm not going to go through the whole list of names all over again. But in verse 1, Matthew opens his gospel with the family tree, telling us this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Unlike the gospel of Mark, if you recall, who immediately jumps into the action and immediately tells us what John the Baptist and Jesus were doing in their ministry as adults, Matthew goes back to the very beginning, in fact, begins his gospel the same way that First Chronicles begins. Raise your hand if First Chronicles is your favorite book of the Bible. Nine chapters of genealogy to begin the book. Nine chapters. If you were to ever just openly, this is why I don't recommend randomly opening the Bible to determine God's will for your life. Nine chapters of genealogy. In this case, thankfully, it's only one chapter, not the whole chapter. But Matthew begins the same way for the same reason. He's trying to prove a pedigree. He's trying to prove a claim, if you will. But why include them at all when Mark and John do not? Mark and John were both writing to a Gentile audience who would not have recognized most of these names, at least not at first, not when they're first hearing the gospel, which is why even to this day, most often when I'm telling people to read a gospel, I don't generally tell them, if they're not familiar at all with the Bible, I'll tell them to go to Matthew first, simply because they might get lost in the names. Uh, more likely to tell them to turn to John or to Mark or the easier gospel, because they're written to Gentiles, like most of us. Now, if I have a Jewish friend, I'm going to take them right to Matthew for the very reason that they need to know that there is a claim to a messiahship. There's a claim to be Christ. And the greatest claim has to be proven through pedigree. It has to be proven through genealogy. You'll notice he sort of sets you up from the very beginning that the most important names in this genealogy are Abraham and David. Because the two greatest promises that God gives concerning the Messiah are given to Abraham and to David. Matthew, if you remember, was a tax collector by trade. Uh, one of the few. And by his profession, there were two things that he was well known for, as all tax collectors were. First, they, they were really good at determining how much you owed your tax. And they also were the keepers of many genealogies. They would keep genealogies for the purpose of taxing your tribe. So if there's anyone who is competent to re research all of this and determine exactly what's going on, he would be the one who could do it. And so we see that his, it's that unique uh, beginning to his gospel that other ones don't have. Uh, in fact, uh, if you remember in Luke's gospel, later on he gives a genealogy as well. But he tells us in, in his gospel that when Caesar decrees that all the peoples of the world are to be registered, they're registered for two purposes, taxes or to fight in battle. And again, each person, each individual had to go to their hometown, to their tribal allotment, so they could determine how much they owe. And so it's very important that these uh, tax collectors were there, because they were the ones who uh, kept these important documents. So he, he does his homework, and he goes through Jesus' genealogy in order to prove his claim to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. Now keep in mind, Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know most adults know that now, but there's still a few kids that might think, uh, if you ask what his last name is, they might say Christ. Christ is the title. It is the Greek title that's equivalent to the title of the Hebrew Messiah. It is that long-promised Savior, that long-promised King who would finally come and crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people from their bondage. But again, the greatest of the promises are given to David and his son, 
to Abraham and his seed. It was promised that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22. And then he was also promised to be the son of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, and a whole bunch of others over and over again. They keep stressing that he would be the son of Abraham, the son of David. So if you were to go to the highlands of Scotland today and you have a Scottish heritage, you also would have a, a well-known tartan or design that specifically shows which clan you belong to. So the MacDonald clan would have their own tartan and then you'd have the Campbell clan would have their own. In this case, Jesus would have to have both of those designs, both of those tartans, earn both of those in order to have his claim to the Messiahship. And that's what Matthew's doing. Very painstaking. He's recording for us every every generation to get down from Abraham and from David. It's very interesting that he does this, even though most of us might have a hard time reading through all the names. But it's, it's for this very reason to prove his claim that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. In fact, it's very interesting because for all those Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, uh, in order to prove that someone else could be, they would have to do the same thing. They would have to go through and find this genealogical list and prove whoever it is all the way back to Abraham and to David, which would be very hard to do, rather impossible, because where the official records are kept are in the temple in Jerusalem, which burned down in 70 AD. So in other words, if you're ever going to have a Christ figure other than Jesus, you would have to somehow bring those records up from the ashes and start all over again, which cannot happen. So somehow, amazingly, God has preserved the records of all of these genealogies year after, even in the deportation to Babylon. In fact, they kept all of these records for this sole reason, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, think about it. In the New Testament, you see any other genealogies even recorded? No. It's all meant to point us to Christ. So now go back and read First Chronicles and mind. Because it's all meant to point you to Christ, even though we don't think of it that way. That's everything about the Old Testament is meant to point us to Christ. Uh, but in the end, we see these genealogies are, are written for no other reason than to prove that he has the right to claim this title of Christ. That's the first thing, his unique pedigree. The second is his unique paternity. You know, each time a baby is born into the world, it is a miracle. Uh, we don't think of it that way oftentimes, but we often forget when a baby is born that there's something dreadfully wrong with every child that comes into this world. We choose not to think about it. We often forget it. Uh, but at first, that little angel that you held in your arms that seems so sweet really becomes a horrible creature and terrorizes most of their family members and their friends. doesn't take long before they throw tantrums, screaming at you from the top of their lungs, beginning to lie and still and hit their siblings and anyone else. They begin their parents' ugly looks. Can you imagine? Kids giving their parents ugly looks, grumbling under their breath. They seem quite innocent at first, but if you take away restraint, even for a few months, that child is capable of murder. I don't mean figuratively. I mean literally. Think about it. 
every child that comes into this world, it, it starts, you know, we think of Cain and Abel. It didn't take long for murder to enter the world after Adam and Eve had fallen in the Garden of Eden. But it's not just them, it's today too. How many times do we have to witness these massive school shootings to realize there is something wrong with every single child born into this world? And we know in that case that there were some extra things that, that helped the bullying, the whatever else that was that, that caused the suffering. But it's interesting when you look at the pictures online of these kids that had shown. I, I was a youth pastor when Columbine happened. And it was on my birthday when it happened. I was not very happy about that. Um, also Hitler's birthday, which is why he did it that day. But you look at the pictures of these kids and, and, and you know, Ethan Crumbly, the, the latest one here in Michigan, um, you see a picture of him wearing his jumpsuit, his orange jumpsuit, and, and his hair is all disheveled, and his, his eyes are glossy, he looks like he's sedated. You're like, oh sure, he could kill him. But you look at a picture, do you see the picture from two years ago? The picture of him with his dad? Such a little boy, so cute. The world full of him, full smile. And you think, how in the world could this happen? How could this turn in such an ugly way. Well, the truth is, it's always been this way. We, we like to think that, you know, there, there was a golden age where this didn't take place. Certainly we didn't have the massive school shootings, but there have always been people, even at a young age, killing others. It's been that way because there's something horribly wrong with every baby born into this world. Something dreadfully wrong, and we don't see it until they often get just a little bit older. Now, as adults, we know that's the truth because we see it in ourselves, right? We see the ugliness. We see how much we have to wrestle against those same desires of the flesh, that same pride and idolatry and anger and lying and stealing, even murderous thoughts when we hate someone, Jesus says. Romans 5.12, Paul tells us, here's what's happened. Just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Through Adam's one transgression, he opened the door. And we all were born with this makeup. We were all born with this inclination. All born with this horrible desire for selfish sinfulness. The difference in this account is that Jesus isn't born the same way. It's what makes his birth extraordinary. In fact, it's what makes his birth essentially different from everyone else's because he can't be born in the same way or else he inherits that same sinful nature. Verse 18, Matthew tells us, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that is, before they consummated their marriage, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Even in the genealogy itself, if you go back and look through all the list of names, it says so-and-so was the father, so-and-so, so-and-so was the father, so-and-so, so-and-so was the father, so-and-so again and again. But in the case when it finally gets to Joseph, it says Jacob was the father of Joseph, but doesn't state that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Instead, he says Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Every other relationship, it stresses the child came from his successor, but not in this case. Although legally his father, technically, biologically, he's not. He can't be. Now keep in mind, the first birth mentioned in this genealogy 
was a miraculous birth. So we're being set up by Matthew, if you will, to get used to that something extraordinary here is more than possible. Uh, if you remember, Isaac is the first one, the first son mentioned. And if you remember, Isaac named, what does his name mean? Remember? Laughter. Because his mother and his father both laughed when they heard that they were going to become pregnant with a son. It's a great name to call someone laughter. Uh, but if you remember why, it's because at the time, Abraham was how old? A hundred. And his wife, Sarah, was how old? Ninety. With a very good-looking ninety over here. <laughs> Nevertheless, very vibrant nine-year-old woman. Uh, but all I can say is uh, still miraculous. Uh, if you look in the records today, strangely enough, um, I, I didn't know this. I had to go back and look it up a couple times just to make sure I was... It's hard when you do research online. You, know, you don't always get the truth. You, you guys do know that, right? Not always the truth? Okay, just check it. Um, so apparently men, even in their 90s, still have the equipment to have a child. It can happen. It's just extremely rare. The potency goes way down, right? Uh, but it, is, it still can happen. So apparently, according to the Internet, you do have a few 90-year-old men who have had children, but they've always had them with women much, much younger. Don't know why. I don't want to ask even, but they have records the men are 90-something and then the women are like 40 or something of that nature. A totally different disparity in age. The oldest women that have had children are usually in their lower 60s. And only after many attempts at in vitro fertilization. And then they have like quadruplets. But you see some of the pictures of them, and you can see why you don't normally want that, you know, at that age. Can you imagine? You're in retirement and you have quadruplets. That just doesn't sound right. Uh, the, the female body was just not designed to bear children at that kind of an age. So it's not the man so much it was, as it was Sarah. As a 90-year-old woman whose womb is completely barren. Now being able to have a child. That's why they laugh. And so if you're set up, if God can bring a child out of a barren womb of a nine-year-old woman, what can he do? And so we're set up for this idea of God bringing a child out of the womb of a young virgin. But for what purpose? By not being born in the ordinary way, through the union of a man and a woman, Jesus does not inherit our sinful nature. In order for him to save us, he can't be exactly like us, at least not in our sinful nature, or else he cannot save us. He's born good. He's born pure, without blemish, without sin, perfect in every way. He's not born with that defect that the rest of us are born with, being the natural progeny of our parents. So when he's conceived in the womb uh, of Virgin Mary, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. How that actually works, I have no idea. Don't ask me to explain it after the service. I will not answer your questions. I have no idea. Uh, all Joseph is told, an angel doesn't even explain to him fully. Joseph is simply told this, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now you're Joseph. You're like, what? <laughs> That's all he says. 
Nothing more. That's all he says. Uh, J.I. Packer has a great quote from this. If you don't know J.I. Packer, great reform thinking he got. Love his death. He says, It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the most profound and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie here in a virgin's womb. In other words, the deepest thing that we can possibly even think about theologically happens in this passage, in this chapter, and we can't wrap our arms around it or anything around it. All we can simply do is agree with the Apostles' Creed that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and just call it quits. It's like trying to explain the Trinity to someone. It's very simple. Jesus is God, and yet Jesus is fully man. If Jesus had not been born of a virgin, he would not be able to save us. Thus, he had to be born in this unique manner. That's why we have these extraordinary birth narratives. It's not just to make him more special, but to prove that he can save us. He had to be proven to be the Christ, and he had to be proven to be a savior. So he, he's born a man in order to save men. He's born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law, but he could not be born of a man in order that he might escape the corruption of men. So as a result, we see throughout his life, Jesus is regularly referring to God as my Father who is in heaven. No other Jew ever said that and ever would because it would be considered blasphemy. But if you go back in Matthew's Gospel, notice how many times he refers to God as my Father over and over and over again to prove that he did not come in the ordinary way but came as the Son of God to save sinners. Now, that leads us to the third point, the, the unique prophecies. Again, the whole point of the book of Matthew is to show one fulfilled prophecy after another, after another, after another. In this chapter, we have the first two. The two names are two titles that are given to uh, the Son of God here, who is to be born of Mary, uh, and, and that concern the rest of his life. The first title is found in verse 21. You look there, right after the angel tells Joseph that his wife is bearing a child, uh, he says to him, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament is, is the Messiah ever given a name. So we're not told what his name will be. Uh, but as you know, again, the, the Greek equivalent of, uh, of Jesus in the Hebrew is the name Joshua. So when you think of uh, the name Joshua, you should automatically think of the man who leads his people into the promised land, the man who leads his people into the place of rest, the man who, who leads them out of their wandering in the wilderness for four years and into the place of promise. So is Moses is in his birth is setting us up for the birth of Christ. Joshua in his ministry setting us up for the ministry of Christ as well, that he would be the one who would lead them not into an earthly promised land, uh, not, at least not originally, but into the heavenly promised land that has been promised for ages. Although that name is never explicitly associated with the Messiah, it's the angel's prophecy, the angel's extra revelation that we're given here, in which we're told uh, that his name was to be called Jesus, because Jesus means Jehovah saves. Again, uh, notice what he says about that saving work. He doesn't say that Jesus is coming to save you from the Romans. He also doesn't say that Jesus is coming to save you from their taxes. Rather, he's coming to save you from your sins. 
big difference. Through Jesus' death at the cross, he saves us from our guilt of sin through the shedding of his blood. Then, through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, giving us a new heart, sanctifying us by his Holy Spirit, he also saves us from the dominion of sin, which is even more important. So we're saved from the guilt of sin. I don't feel guilty because of my sin anymore, knowing that Christ has paid the punishment for my sin. But also saved from the dominion of sin. This is, this is a huge concept that I don't think a lot of Christians get. In other words, it means I no longer have that old slave master that is the devil. I'm no longer under his lordship. I mean, if you think of it sort of a you know, slave being on a plantation, I'm no longer owned by that. I'm a free man. I can live for the Lord as he's called me to now. I have the power within me to do that. I no longer have to be a slave to my, to, to all of my provinces. But then in addition to that, when we're finally transferred, if you will, from this kingdom to the next, we're also free from the presence of sin. It's no longer a part of us. It's no longer around us. It's no longer near us when we finally enjoy that heavenly rest. So that's that's the first title uh, that he gets, that, that Jesus is the Savior in that sense. But then secondly, in verse 22 and verse 23, there Matthew also says that this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So not only was Jesus born as a man, he was and is and will continue to be God. And we know from the language of the Old Testament that every time God wanted to be with his people, it was necessary for two things. There had to be some form of a tabernacle or a temple, some sort of a mediation between a priest and God's people, and a number of sacrifices, thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices, in order that God could dwell with his people. Now that title, that God is with us in, the, in our camp, if you will, which is the same concept of paradise. If you remember Jesus walking with them in the pool of the garden, God is with us. Now Jesus is given that title. Amen. Well, how is that the case? Well, in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, the verse 1, we hear the, in that gospel, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? But then if you skip down to verse 14 of that same chapter, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally in the Greek, it's the same term as tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. In other words, he became the dwelling place of God. If you want to meet with God, you don't have to go to a temple or to a tabernacle. You go through Jesus. Jesus is the place where you meet with God because he is God. Jesus took on our flesh in the Greek language. It signifies that he tabernacled among us in order that we might know God. So there's no need for thousands and thousands and thousands of bulls, rams, and lambs of sacrifices again and again. This is what we've been learning in Hebrews. He died once and for all to take away the guilt of our sin to take away the dominion of our sin, ultimately to take away the presence of sin in our life. That's the goal. Jesus would sacrifice himself in order to reconcile himself to a sinful people and dwell in their midst. Always know that. It's not just to give us freedom from our sin, but so that we can then have a relationship with him, that he might dwell in our midst. And it's interesting. 
as much as Matthew's genealogy is used to prove Jesus' pedigree, to prove his right as Christ, as the Messiah, to be the king of the Jews, the king of the world. You'll notice, though, that Matthew also takes great pains to include in that same genealogy a number of names that you wouldn't normally expect to have included in a royal lineage. Think about it. Most, um, especially in the more dictatorial kingships throughout history, they, they have a tendency to erase names of people they don't love. Uh, and anybody that was uh, a less desirable person in their bloodline, they tended to keep them in the attic, away from everyone, so that no one would ever see that this person was not the kind of person that you would expect to be of royal blood. Well, instead of covering up these less desirable ones, Matthew is purposely adding their names, stressing their names, making you slow down even as you read the names in the genome so that you pay attention to these people that are included. Now, the, the women did a study, I think, last year, uh, a book called, uh, What Is She Doing Here? I think is what it's called. Uh, because it, the, the names that immediately jump out to us are the, the names of the women, not because they're more wicked than the men, but just because it's so rare to see their names. There's only like three or four names there that have a, a name of a woman as opposed to a man. But every time these women are mentioned, they're almost always some outsider, some Gentile influence, and in, in many cases, some of those who did some uh, you know, things by their calling, if you will, that were less than uh, pure. Think of Tamar. Tamar, I think, was probably a, a very pure woman who was trying to do the right thing. And then after her father-in-law continued to uh, look over her uh, and, and the rule of giving her one of his sons to make up for the, the son that had, that had passed, if you remember, uh, Tamar is the first woman mentioned here. She purposely uh, dresses up like a prostitute to entice her father-in-law. That's pretty, that's pretty damn low right there. Um, but I'd say it's worse that he actually goes through with it and uh, looks for a prostitute um, and then ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. So that's purposely included in this list. Huh. Why? Same thing happens later on. We have uh, Rahab included, this Canaanite prostitute, again, included in the lineage of Israel. Uh, but of course we know that both Tamar and Rahab both express some aspect of faith. They're later grafted in, if you will, into Israel. Same thing with Ruth. Ruth is not a, of a prostitute at all. Um, uh, but she does come from a, a cursed tribe as a Moabitess. And as a result, she has to attach herself to the people of God. She has to leave her own people in order to be included in that lineage. But the fact that Matthew is including her name doesn't have to. Doesn't have to mention these women at all. He purposely mentions them to make a point of some kind. But in addition to that, in addition to these Gentile outcasts, there are plenty of evil men in the lineage that he could have skipped over. In fact, I'll have you notice he actually does skip some names. But he purposely includes some of the really wicked guys in there too, though. Look at some of the list of the kings, and they're not so good. And in fact, uh, plenty of uh, plenty of evil men and exiles and prisoners, and some were kings, but many were living in poverty and obscurity. There's nothing special about these people, other than the fact that they were either nobodies or they were wicked. And Matthew purposely includes them in the list. Now, do you not think that Matthew, the tax collector, is trying to make a point here in his own gospel? Think about it. 
Every single time a tax collector is mentioned in the New Testament, is that considered positive or negative? Every single time a tax collector is associated with evil. He's either a Gentile or he's associated with prostitutes, which is strange because Matthew's a Jew, and yet he's associated as if he was a Gentile and an evil and an unclean person. So you can imagine Matthew, the tax collector, who probably even half the disciples questioned him whether he should have been one of the disciples. As he's giving his testimony to the gospel, he begins by pointing out all of these people that don't deserve salvation. They're full of sin, full of sketchy lives and histories. And yet his point is that God has come to save you. God has come to save sinners. It's interesting, uh, even uh, Jesus himself was mocked at times for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet Matthew is, is, is basically telling you from the very beginning, this gospel is for tax collectors and sinners. It's not for those priests and those kings who think that they have no issues, but for those who are the worst of the worst. It was sinners that he came to save. In fact, later on in the gospel, Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus says to the chief priests and elders, again, Matthew stresses this. Jesus says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you, referring to the, the chief priests and the elders and the teacher of the law. He says, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of heaven before you. Why? Because they believe the gospel and they their sin that they needed to save. That's his message in a nutshell. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what your pedigree is. It doesn't matter whether you came from a, a higher class or a lower class and whatever else. It means nothing in terms of spiritual things. The only thing that really matters is whether or not we're associated with this Savior. He only comes to save sinners. He only comes to save prostitutes, tax collectors, and all those people who may not have their sins worn on their sleeve like them, but nevertheless know their sin well and hate their sin much and feel hopeless in every possible way apart from the Savior outside. We'll never get into heaven by trying to be good. We'll never get into heaven by trying to do enough righteous deeds to compensate for our evil deeds. The truth of the matter is there's something dreadfully wrong with each one of us. We were born that way. We have gotten worse since then. Amen to that. You've only progressed in sin. The only way to overcome that is for God to send his own son, who is not tainted by that in any way, as a savior of sinners. The reason why we celebrate Christmas, the reason why we celebrate this birth narrative, is to know that Christ is Jesus is the Christ. If he didn't come in the normal way, and then every prophecy about him points to the fact that the rest of his life is spent and is shed for sinners. If you're a sinner, there's hope for you today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would help all those in the room today. There are plenty that have known their sin for many years that already looked to Christ and prayed that they would continue to look to Christ today. For those who have heard the gospel on a number of occasions, for those who have met just to hear it today, I, I pray, Father, that you would help them to understand the weightiness of their sin, the need for a Savior, 
I do pray that you would open their eyes to the, 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 the great depravity of hearts, the impurity of the mind, and how quickly each one of us can and will and do hurt others and turn our backs upon the God who has made us. Lord, we pray that you would give us a better understanding of the gospel, a greater appreciation for it, and a greater resting in it. That our salvation, our assurance of salvation, will be based upon the Son of God who has come to save sinners and tax believers.